Well, uh, for Father's Day today, my son gave me a superhero t-shirt. So his favorite superhero, The Flash, and he said, you know, Dad, it's because you're my hero. Will you wear it to church today? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to wear it to church today. You're not going to say no in that situation. Uh, so today uh, I am uh, a superhero. You suspected. Uh, but uh, what's going on back there? Not, not Flash Gordon, but Flash Jordan. Jerome, yeah. Brilliant. Uh, so, uh, so I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a good thing for the day. I think we all, we all need to get into, uh, into superhero mindset. I mean, really, that's, uh, that might be the most valuable thing about coming together as church. Uh, it's, uh, it's our weekly uh, infusion of faith. Another word for faith is confidence uh, and faith, confidence. Those things are an attitude. So I thought we'd warm up by doing uh, our weekly attitude adjustment. And just to get in the spirit of it, the band got together and they wrote a theme song for attitude adjustment. All right. So everybody, come on. Rock concert attitude. Here's our new theme song for attitude adjustment. Ready? All right, wait up, wait up. So everybody, everybody stand up, and what we're going to do now is we're going we're gonna to assume the superhero pose of your choice. We've done, we've done stuff like this uh, before. You, you could just, if you want to, uh, and research back this up. We've talked about this. You can just take the victory pose if you want to. Uh, you can just take Superman pose if you want to. That's okay. You can try that one out, see how it fits. Uh, you can take Wonder Woman pose. All right? Uh, or if I'm missing something, what is that? X-Man pose? This is Wonder Woman? I haven't seen the movie, so. All right. So uh, on the count of three, and we're just going to hold it for 30 seconds, but you can't just hold it and think, my pastor is an idiot. You can't do that. What you have to do is you have to bring a little swag to it or it doesn't work. You have to rock your superhero, all right? So, you know, if you're taking the Superman, Superman pose, you have to look to your left and your right to round. You're going to be like, that's right. Uh-huh. <laughs> you can't handle this. All right? So you got it? We got to do that for 30 seconds. You got your pose? You got it in mind? This is an attitude adjustment. So it's got to be filled with attitude. Ready? One, two, three, go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Share it. Share the attitude. So that's right. We need some of this. All right, excellent. Well done. Good job. Good job. Ryland, show your pose. Well, yeah, show your pose to everybody. No, you got to turn. Okay, what is that? It's the power of prayer. You know, there's righteous and then there's righteous. The power of prayer. Did anybody do Kung Fu Panda power pose? But several people now regret that they did not. All right, all right. Dads only. All the dads stand up. Let's go because a superhero. Dads only. All right. So what's going to happen is they're going to they're going to assume their superhero pose, and then everybody's going to give them an ovation. All right. Ready? Come on, dads. We're we're going to warm up with with one powerful dad grunt. Ready? One, two, three. Grunt. Mm. It's very manly. It's very manly. A little bit intimidating. All right. Ready? Take your pose. I, I love it because Spencer has his baby in his arms. I mean, one, two, three, go. 
Ovation for Dad. Superheroes in our midst. Superheroes, there you go. Oh, yeah. Some dads are taking the Wonder Woman pose. That's okay. That works. That works. Because, you know, we're enlightened postmoderns. Nicely done. Is your attitude adjusted? Because if it's not, I'll have the band come up and sing again. No, okay, all right. Excellent. Your attitude is adjusted. Come together and encourage faith in one another, whether you do it through some silly exercise um, before the sermon, or whether you just greet one another uh, with a smile, with a nod of the head, with a hug or a firm grip of the shoulders. It is our most important ministry. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be in our midst today, that you would fill this room, and that you would adjust our attitudes as necessary. I pray that you would infuse us with faith that you would infuse us with miracle-working confidence. I know that many of us this morning have walked in with a worldly mindset, that we have dust in our vents, that we came expecting absolutely nothing, that we went through this week grinding through anxiety and chores and never stopping to think, uh, that we have superhero power available that we minister with the living presence of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would adjust our attitudes this morning. In Jesus' name, let everybody say, now that we're warmed up, a pop quiz. Uh, what's the best thing that can happen to you? Like, you know, like, you know, out of the blue, out of the blue, like this week, change in your life. What's the best thing that can happen to you? Lay hands on someone and they grow a new arm. There's a woman thinking like a superhero. Arm replacement girl. Yes. What? What comes to your mind? Free babysitting. Vern has set the bar high. Bigger? I could stop bugging you about drinking enough water. I'm feeling that maybe the congregation isn't thinking high enough. Uh, when you ask that question uh, to, uh, to the public uh, in general, like nationally, do you know what the number one answer is? Win the lottery. It's the number one th that, that's where people's mind go. Overwhelmingly, uh, their number one response is, what's, what's the greatest thing that could happen to you that could change your life? And the overwhelming response is, well, I could win the lottery. I could win $20 million, $50 million, $100 million. That would change my life. That would really empower my life. Do you know that statistics show that 70%, 70, 70% of those who win uh, a lottery or have a huge windfall in their life to the tune of multi-millions of dollars, 70% of those people end up bankrupt within five years. Could you imagine winning $50 million and have it ruining your life? 70% of the time, winning more money than you can imagine ruins your financial life. Does that surprise you? It goes along with other statistics that are similar. We've shared some of them before. 80% of NFL football players are bankrupt within three years of retirement. Like 80%. He's people that make millions of dollars doing the thing that they love best. Why is that, do you suppose? I mean, the statistics are so striking. Why do you think that happens? Well, we should probably have an easy answer, being spiritually enlightened people that we are. Um, I think I can tell you exactly why it happens. Uh, it's because the people who win hundred millions of dollars uh, tend to have no purpose in life, right? They're not living life according to their purpose. So they think that power will come in the form of $100 million. Where does power come from? Everybody at Blue Water should know this by now. In your purpose lies your power. Your purpose is what you want to achieve in life. Uh, more specifically for us, it's what the Lord has called us to and if you don't know what the Lord has called you to do, you are without power. If you do know and live according to what the Lord has called you to do, you have more power uh, than you need. 
uh, to change the world. And the power is in you that raised Christ from the dead. We should all know this, right? We should all know this. So whenever I ask, where does your power come from, what are you going to say? Concerns me a little bit that you guys didn't just shout that out because I've, I've probably said it 200 times since the beginning of the year. So turn to someone next to you and says, in your purpose lies your power. Go ahead, share. In your purpose lies your power. And if you are not living life according to your purpose, then even if you have a massive blessing in life or a string of massive blessings, your life will end in destruction. Which is kind of a, a stark thing to say, so I'll say it again. If you are not living according to your purpose, then even if massive blessings come into your life, your life will end in destruction your legacy will be destructive. No matter what you accomplish, if you're not living according to your God-given purpose, ultimately, it will all just end up in destruction. If you live without godly purpose, things end badly. You'll lose your way. Um, things that you think um, you have achieved will end in chaos. And of course, I mean it literally as well. We have a uh, a scripture today from what is, uh, at least in terms of order of publishing, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We've done this whole series uh, on the Bible, the story of God. I thought I'd just sort of punctuate it by reading from Revelations today, book of Revelation, uh, Revelation 20. So this is a, a prophecy about the end of this age as we know it. And the revelator, the prophet, uh, a fellow named John, is, is having a, a, an amazing open vision from the Lord. And in, in uh, chapter 20, he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Who do you think is seated on the great white throne? God, Jesus, the Lord, yeah. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, an awesome presence. And there was no place for them, no place for them to hide. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And then books were opened, records were opened. And then another book was opened, another record was opened, which is the book of life, which sounds like the important one. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. There's a record of our deeds, evidently. This... Um, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, the final death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire, into the final death. The passage continues, the beginning of the next chapter. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. The sea in, in Judeo-Christian tradition always represents chaos. There was no longer any chaos. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. There's some mixing of metaphors there, but you get the idea. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them for the first time since the beginning, since Eden. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The disorder of things has passed away. You guys know that passage? That's the passage about the end. If you don't get a little choked up reading that passage, then check your pulse because you don't get it. This is it. I mean, this is, this is where it's going you see in this passage ultimate restoration. You see, you know, the universe itself made new. Uh, you see chaos, decay, put to death. You know, it's, 
it's often presented in metaphorical language here uh, because it is a prophetic vision, uh, but we understand the symbols, right? Ultimate restoration. Everything made new, no more crying, no more pain, no more mourning, death is gone, eternal life. I mean, this is it. You see ultimate opportunity uh, implicitly in this passage because there's a book of life and then there's a book of like non-life things that we have done. Where do you want your name to be found? Yeah, just a little additive check. Where do you want your name to be found? Yeah, you want, you want your name in the, in the book of life. Uh, because if not, what happens to you? Um, well, uh, let me insert uh, doctrinal theology lesson right here. Uh, the scripture doesn't actually say that if you are judged negatively at the end of the age, you get thrown into a place called hell and get tortured eternally, permanent torture. You know, that's most people's vision of hell. That's actually not what scripture says. What scripture says is at the end of the age, if you get judged negatively, you get, you get put to death permanently. You know, the final death, the lake of fire, that sort of, that vision of God as a guy who gets his jollies for eternity, poking hot pokers into sinners. That did not come from the Bible. That came from other mythological sources. Um, what the Bible says is, look, there is a judgment. And you do get judged according to what you did. Um, there are other passages that explain that a bit more carefully. If you're not safe for eternity, which is to say, if you are not living according to life, but are instead live according to chaos and evil, whatever, uh, then, then you essentially get you get eliminated forever. You get euthanized, so to speak. That, that's what the Bible says. If, does that make a difference? Uh, a lot of people get hung up on a cruel God, um, but I, I, like, I like what the Bible actually says. If you're safe for eternity, if you are a person in order and of life, then you get to live eternally. If you're not safe for eternity, if you have rejected life, if you have rejected order, then it's not like God is going to let a wild dog in to run with the sheep. You get put down and you get put down forever, um, ultimate cost. Ultimate restoration, ultimate opportunities, potentially an ultimate cost, but potentially an ultimate reward as well. This is the final chapter, and it is awesome. And we have to live with this end in mind, I think. Otherwise, whatever happens, we're gonna screw it up. <laughs> even if we win the lottery, for instance. Uh, and this is what the book of Revelation is about. Have you ever read it? It's really easy to understand. People debate a lot about the book of Revelation and wonder why it's hanging there at the end of the Bible as, as the punctuation. I think it's there at the end of the Bible as a punctuation because it kind of summarizes um, the end for us in a, in a nice way. This is what it comes down to. Uh, Revelation kind of comes in two halves. Uh, there's the half that is about the end, about ultimate judgment, ultimate restoration. And there's also a half of it that was a, a message meant to encourage Christians living uh, at the time the book of Revelation was written, which was right at the end of the first century, right at the beginning of the second century. So like 95 AD and forward. Um, all those encouraging bits are the bits that people uh, typically get con confused about because there's like, you know, the beast that rises out of the sea with the seven heads and the ten horns and that stuff. Do you guys know this? Have you ever read it? Uh, let, me, let me run it down really quickly. Um, so this is the book of Revelation in four minutes. Saves you a lot of time and wrestling, wrestling through. Uh, so the book opens... Uh, announces itself in chapter 1 as a prophecy and as an apocalyptic prophecy. In Greek, the word is apocalypsis, which literally means a revelation. So that's why it's called revelation in most of our Bibles. And the first real a metaphorical symbolic thing that happens is that um, there appear in heaven, uh, the prophet is seeing this, this prophet John, who's in exile on the island of Patmos. Um, this is the John... Uh, presumably, that hung out with Jesus. He was the longest-lived apostle of the original 12. Uh, he, was, he died of old age, uh, and he was 
like the only one of the original apostles who did. Most of the rest of them got killed in horrible, horribly gruesome ways. Uh, but he lives in old age. He's writing this apocalypse, this grand revelation. And he sees a vision of heaven. And in heaven he sees seven seals, seven scrolls that were sealed. And the seals are broken. And uh, what you see there is a representation of the effects of war, the effects of evil and strife in the world. Uh, you got death, you got famine, uh, stuff like that. And in the middle of that vision is uh, a group of faithful, of Christians who persevere to the end, and they are calling out for justice. So that's kind of how it opens. There's a picture of heaven and earth at war. And in the middle of that are a group of the faithful who end up being kind of like the superheroes of, of the, the war uh, on earth. Then seven trumpets sound, uh, and, and against the forces of war, against the forces of famine, plagues are released. Uh, seven plagues, seven trumpets uh, release uh, seven plagues against the oppressors. And, and it reads a little bit like the story of the ten plagues of Egypt, where God said you know, to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. And so the Lord said, well, I'm going to start releasing some warnings to you in the form of plagues that hopefully will get you to listen. The same thing kind of repeats in the book of, of Revelation. All of these plagues, all of these sicknesses, all of these warnings as God is saying, stop the injustice, stop the injustice. And then you get a series of revelation that are like pulling back the curtain. The world is at war. There's all these famines. There's all this death. There are all these plagues. But what's really going on? And the first thing uh, John sees in his vision is, is uh, this woman giving birth to uh, a child, a holy child, uh, which is, you know, the child being Christ, uh, being Jesus. The woman, maybe, maybe Mary, uh, but probably more generally just like, you know, uh, God's people. Birthing a savior into the world. And there's a dragon trying to kill the baby. Who does the dragon represent? Pop quiz. Yeah, I'm going to go with Satan. Uh, personification of evil. That sort of thing. So uh, the vision says what's really going on is that there's a manifestation of evil. And there's a manifestation of godliness and righteousness. And they are at war with one another. That's what explains all warfare, all death, all famine everything else that you see uh, in the world. And then he, uh, the vision gets into specific contemporary manifestations of this conflict. Uh, and the first, maybe the most famous uh, symbolic vision is, is the beast that rises out of the sea, the beast that comes out of chaos, literally, and it has the ten heads, no wait, the seven heads and the ten horns, and it's all very, very symbolic. Um, and uh, that uh, almost certainly is a symbolic representation of Rome. Uh, Rome was the giant power of the day. And during the writing of this letter, uh, the prophet is encouraging Christi Christians to be faithful in the midst of persecution. What's happening is Rome is systematically executing Christians. The good news is that Christianity had done fantastically well in the first century after the death of Jesus, even though they had no power and it was a bunch of poor people uh, spreading around the globe, it actually took root and it became famous in, in most of the cities of the Roman Empire. At a certain point, Rome decided that it just had enough, that for some reason, of all the religions that existed in the Roman Empire that Rome had embraced, it would choose to kill one. It would target one, Christianity. Why Rome picked out that one? Uh, this strange cult of poor people. Well, the prophet explains that. It's because it was, it was the one that really counted because all of life boiled to this opposition between the holy child and the dragon. Uh, and uh, the Roman emperors had taken to declaring themselves gods. And you could follow any religion you wanted provided that you also worship the emperor. That was the deal. And of course, Christians were like, no, thank you. Uh, and so, uh, beginning with uh, Nero, you've heard of the Roman Emperor Nero, uh, they just started executing Christians for fun. Uh, and so, uh, seven heads, uh, some say it represents the seven hills of Rome, 
or something like that. So that's the first uh, symbolic beast. And then we get uh, a beast that rises from the earth. Um, and uh, there's different beasts, so like part leopard and, and other things. But this beast is given a number, and that number is 666. How many have heard of 666? Yeah. 666 is a Hebrew uh, numeric. Uh, Jewish Christians would have understood this. In, in, in the Jewish language, the Jew, Jewish alphabet, every letter had a numeric value. So when Jewish people wanted to talk in code, what they would do is give you a number, and then you would figure out what combinations of letters added up to that number. Well, it turned out that, that Nero's name, uh, Neron Kaiser, uh, would have been in the, uh, the pidgin Greek that um, most of the people in this area of the world spoke. Uh, you add up all the letters in that name, and it comes out to 666. So that's what 666 is. It was codenamed for Nero, because if the Romans had picked up the letter, Apocalypsis, John's letter of Revelation, and read about Nero, then they would have destroyed the letter and anybody who had it. But by writing in code, they could criticize Nero, and the Romans would be none the wiser. That, that's what's going on. Um, so Mark of the Beast, the Antichrist, uh, the personification of evil, the, the thing that's trying to wipe out the child and those who follow the child. It's, it's the Roman emperors uh, that, that are doing it. Um, in the midst of all this persecution, these beasts that are coming up, uh, written in code so that only uh, Christians and, and Jewish people would understand, uh, you get from time to time an appearance of 144,000 people, a remnant of the faithful. 144,000 is 12 times 12 in, in, in Hebrew uh, numerics. 12 is the number of complete government. That's why there were 12 apostles. So 12 times 12 means like super complete. 12 times 12 times 1,000 is super, super complete. In other words, the full gathering of the people of God. In the book, it's represented as 144,000. Uh, and they're always matched with the Lamb. What does the lamb represent? Jesus, the sacrificial lamb. Uh, the 144,000 typically uh, represent those who have died for their faith, who are now with the lamb. Uh, three angels appear at this point and encourage everyone not to worship the beast, not to worship the emperor, because emperor worship was the big religious issue of the day. Are you following so far? All right, we're almost done. Uh, then there's a great uh, prophetic warning in heaven uh, against Babylon. Uh, Babylon was uh, a name that Christians and Jews used to refer to Rome because Babylon was the great evil city of the Old Testament. Rome is sort of the great evil city of the New Testament. So they call it Babylon. And again, Roman officials reading about Babylon wouldn't have gotten it. They wouldn't have understood. So it was subversive symbolism. But most importantly, the fall of Babylon is depicted, conquered by a rider on a white horse. White is the color of God's purpose. Uh, this rider is obviously Jesus. He speaks the word of God. And it, it is emphasized that Rome is conquered, but not by human armies, rather by the word that Christ speaks. And indeed, we see that happen. This is one of those prophecies that actually come true. Because just a couple centuries later, Rome fell. Not, I'm not saying political Rome fell to invading armies. Rome fell to Jesus. Emperor Constantine, uh, who did not declare, declare himself to be a god, a Roman emperor, Constantine, uh, became a Christian. And said that Christian, Christianity was no longer illegal in the empire. You weren't going to kill Christians anymore. And a little while later, Christianity became recognized as at least one of uh, the state religions of the Roman Empire. Rome fell to Christianity without a shot being fired by the Christians, which is exactly what the book of Revelation predicted. And now, when we think of Rome, we think of a Christian capital. Right? Um, and Satan has had to change his strategy entirely. Rome is no longer trying to kill Christians. Rome has become Christian, and now the enemy is just trying to corrupt Roman Christianity from within. You know, he's had to change his strategies. 
So that's all very encouraging. And then there's this picture, finally, of ultimate judgment. The point being, all of these dramatic things are going to happen in, in, in this generation, meaning in first century AD, as well as the generation that we're in right now, there are going to be different personifications of evil, different manifestations of systemic evil. I mean, this is always going to happen. Why? Because the world is at war, and it's always a war between evil and godliness. Always. It's always a war between those whom Satan has deluded and organized and those whom Christ has restored and organized. This is ever the case. So we who are on the side of good, uh, who are following the victories of Jesus, need to keep this end in mind and we need to Hold on, as it says in Revelation 20, verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. In the end, we all end up in a courtroom. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. There's going to be hordes of martyrs there, tons and tons of people who have been killed for their faith. They had not worshipped the beast or its image. They had not worshipped the Roman emperors. They had not worshipped the beast across any generation. There's still a temptation for us to worship the beast today. They had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. A thousand years being a picture of completion. Um, Hold on, and it will pay off. Hold on to the point of death, and it will pay off. Don't worship the beast. Don't worship the beast. Revelation teaches that the world is at war, and there is great pressure to give in. In, 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 in those days, it was a pressure to, to worship the emperor so you didn't get killed. Or the mark of the beast. You hear, if you've read the book of Revelation, much is made this phrase, the mark of the beast. Uh, well, uh, the image of Nero appeared on all the Romans co Roman coins. Revelation says, if you don't have the mark of the beast, you can't buy and sell. If you're not willing to, to use graven images, which Jewish people would not, was not, were not willing to use graven images, then you were not allowed to buy and sell, right? You couldn't use the coin. That's what that's about. But in our age, it's going to mean something different. Don't worship the beast. Don't give in. Lottery statistics teach that in a world at war, even massive blessings can become a deadly distraction and a burden if you fail to keep the end in mind. If you fail to realize that this is a world at war every day, if you fail to realize that you have a purpose to do, you need to complete it. In your purpose lies your power because uh, pursuing purpose, which is to say doing the ministry that God has called you to do, that's how we exercise trust in this world. If you have been following the whole sermon series on the Ark of the Bible, you remember that the first stories from the book of Genesis were about precisely this. We knew God existed. We did not trust God to be good, so we disobeyed him in the Garden of Eden. The first thing God did as a response to that was he gave us a purpose. He said, look, you know, you got you to gotta tend this garden. You have to uh, bring order to the world. Go subdue the earth. You have taken the earth into chaos, but I want you to bring order. I want you to bring restoration. That's your job. Do it. And if you do that then maybe you'll realize at the end that I was trustworthy all along. Our oldest stories, humanity's oldest stories, present life in these terms. You've got a job to do. Remember to do it, or the chaos will take you. <clears throat> Trusting God is what makes us worthy for entering into uh, eternity. Jesus um, himself rarely talked about sin, very rarely, um, but he often talked about judgment, which is to say he often talked about the end, 
he often talked about eternity. He doesn't want us to obsess about sin. But I think he does kind of want us to obsess about judgment and about whether or not we're keeping true to our purpose until the end in the midst of all the chaos and all the warfare. Jesus actually even sweetens the pot a little bit. He says things like, uh, as you go through your day, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Meaning that it's not just about how you get judged at the end, it's about what you have in eternity's bank account at the end. The godly things that we do, the purposeful things that we do now, actually turn into some kind of wealth for us in heaven. I don't know how that works, and actually scripture is explicitly evasive about how that works. Saying, uh, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind conceived what lies in store for us in heaven. But we get rewarded for pursuing our purpose every day. Good deeds, um, it's not just that they go unpunished, but ultimately they count eternally. That's awesome. I like that. That's what I want. I want not just to make it into heaven, but when I make it into heaven, I want there to be some rewards waiting for me when I get there. That seems like a really, really good retirement plan. Yeah, what do you think? That's how I want to live life. That's, that's, that's kind of how Jesus uh, presents it. Um, always be thinking about eternity in how we live. So, uh, let's remember uh, that this world is chaotic, that chaos resists life and goodness. Let's remember that if you get distracted, even by massive things like a $100 million lottery win, then you're going to get your butt kicked. And you're going to get your butt kicked in a way that will have terrible repercussions for you in eternity. Things are not neutral in life. The days are evil. The days are chaotic, as scripture puts it. So I think we need to remember three things, and this is as good a summary uh, of what we have been talking about for the first six months of the year, uh, as I know how to give. Three things that we need to keep in our minds or to be clear on in our minds. This is really, really simple. You need to get clear on your attitude, you need to get clear on your purpose, and you need to get clear on your method. Everything hinges on this. So it's really worth thinking through. Um, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is an attitude, right? It's an attitude that says, hey, God could do something great here. The thing that is most contagious about you is your attitude is whether or not you are moving in faith, which is why we do attitude adjustment exercises. And, and it's the most valuable thing that we have to give to one another. It's not knowledge. It's not, even, it's not even service, material service. The most valuable thing that we have to share with one another is faith attitude. So we need to get clear on that. I tend to suck at faith attitude, as heroic as I am. Um, I need to spend a little time every day kind of doing my own personal attitude adjustments. Like, there's a big difference living in faith attitude and living in world attitude. You think that's true? There's a huge difference living in faith attitude and living in world attitude. Which attitude do you live in? Go ahead, write it down. Simple questions, simple answers. Do you live in faith attitude? Do you live in eternity attitude? Do you live in victory attitude? Or do you live in, oh crap, it's Monday attitude? You need to get clear on it. Um, because in one lies uh, a great deal of fruitfulness, and in the other lies uh, a great deal of destruction. Then you need to get clear on your purpose. We all have a singular purpose as Christians to be salt and light. Uh, it's super vital. You need to get clear on it. You need to be a positive effect on the people around you, on the world around you. That's being salt. It's being flavor. Or it's being light. It's being illumination. Jesus uses different metaphors to explain it. But you need to affect the people around you. Or else. 
And one always hates to put it like that. But Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Um, perhaps more concretely or thoroughly, look, if you forget your purpose, you lose your power. And if you lose your power in a time of warfare, what happens to you? Well, yeah, you get trampled by men. And in the end, you might get thrown out permanently. This is really vital stuff. This is kind of the doctrine of, of, uh, of our faith. So we need to get really clear on our purpose. That's our general purpose. And you have a specific calling from God. Uh, we've gone through that uh, a couple times as a congregation. This upcoming Pathway to Purpose conference that we are doing on July 29th uh, is just one day that we are setting aside to really help people get clear on their specific calling, their specific God-given calling. We have designed it in such a way that it's not just for believers, it's not just for Blue Water believers, but you can invite non-believers as well. Because I firmly believe that people who search for purpose, honestly, end up finding God. Just as people who search for God, honestly, end up finding their purpose. Um, so conference is designed for that, getting clear on your specific God-given purpose. Everybody has one. Um, you have to know what you want to achieve. Not what you want to do, but what you want to achieve. That's your purpose. Uh, your plans will get reshaped by many forces, but your purpose will never be reshaped. It's eternal. It comes from God. And then you get, need to get clear on your method, uh, by which I mean you have to have routines and rituals and tools. You need to develop skills for pursuing your purpose. Best practices, uh, as uh, we put it uh, at one point in our survey on the Bible. How are you going to do what God has called you to do? Hopefully church is part of that. Hopefully an Ohana group is part of that. We have different ministry groups. You have to commit to something. You have to follow through. Discipleship is... Let's try it again. Discipleship is? Discipleship is follow through. Discipling is? Follow up. Yeah. Follow through and follow up. But, you, but you've got to have something that, that you're doing. If you don't have a specific plan, then the chaos will take you. Uh, you need to get clear on attitude. You need to get clear on your purpose. You need to get clear on your method. Otherwise, $10 million won't help you. You'll end up, it'll end up bankrupting you is just astonishing. Your life is at stake. So today, uh, I want to end by just uh, trying for a moment of clarity. Um, I once read uh, this, uh, these really big Christian websites has to do with this famous Christian uh, publication. Um, I was... Uh, for some reason, I was Googling Blue Water, and I found this review written by someone who had visited this church on a Sunday, and then, I don't know, some traveling church reviewer, unbeknownst to me, just sort of had come in and then had published a review of us on this national website. Uh, so I was like, oh, this is really interesting. This was several years ago. Uh, and uh, and it, was, it was kind of a cool review, uh, what, what this fellow said was, I had heard about this church and how interesting it was. Uh, they're doing all sorts of interesting things in the community, so I decided to go to their service uh, while I was on a trip to Hawaii. I walked in and was aghast. The place was, uh, I forget exactly uh, what he said, um, the place was in disarray. It was incredibly stuffy. Uh, they had large fans that made uh, a ridiculous amount of white noise. Uh, the, back, the back wall uh, was open, and outside kids were playing and screaming. Um, uh, the music uh, was passionate, and he said, and the teaching was good, um, but it was all I could do to focus, because there was so much chaos in the environment. And then at the end, they called for the Holy Spirit to come, and they did some ministry. Uh, and the guy concluded by saying, somehow I experienced something that I had never experienced before. Uh. And, and I read that review, and I thought, 
pretty fair, actually. <laughs> that about sums it up, doesn't it? You know, like, you know, we, we do what we can. If, if, if you're looking for a comfortable experience, how long are you going to stay at Blue Water? Let, let's, let's be honest. Not very long, right? Um, it, it, it takes a certain investment, right? It takes a willingness to receive. It takes a willingness to find purpose in the midst of chaos. And I thought, oh, that's just a great metaphor. It's a great metaphor for blue water, and I think that's just a profound metaphor for life. And I think that's why our little church is so great when it comes to changing lives, All right? We are, we are not great at other things, <laughs> not at all. Uh, but it is a transformative experience for anyone who's actually serious uh, about participating uh, in, in what's going on. Uh, and and that, I tell that story because that's my hope for every Sunday, and that's my hope especially for today, that amidst the chaos of life, maybe the environmental chaos that we experience here at Palama Settlement, maybe the chaos of your morning, um, for dads, you know, maybe it's a certain amount of chaos in your family. Maybe it's just more generally for us, chaos in our relationships, chaos in our job, chaos in our financial situation. Maybe you're one of those that think, well, if I could just win the lottery and just get this chaos ironed out. Well, news, news flash. The chaos is not going to go away. What you need to do is to not make the chaos go away. What you need to do is to find a way to pursue purpose in the midst of it, in the midst of your chaotic environment. And if you do that, you will become an inexplicable transformative agent. You will be able to do things that normal people can't do. You will have superpowers. Ah. It's tough to be a superhero because you're an alien in the world. You feel like nobody really knows who you are. The thing that defines you more than anything else is your mission, right? You're really committed uh, to what you do. Um, I want a moment of clarity for you. What are you committed to? What are you actually committed to doing? Now, you're going to have to get clear on your attitude. If you don't have faith, you're never going to get clear about anything else. But you need, to, you need to come to grips with what God has called you to do. And you need to have a method. You need to commit to certain steps. Because if you don't commit to the practical steps, you are uncommitted. You will get your butt kicked. So I'm just praying for a moment of clarity for you today. I am, I am praying for a final revelation. An apocalypsis. For all of us that we live this life with the end in mind. Maybe uh, today uh, it's uh, just a decision to commit. Maybe that's what you need to do. I need to go all in in God and I need to stop messing around. I need to stop pretending that life is just a little too complicated for me to live like a Jesus follower. I need to stop pretending that I'm too busy. I need to stop pretending that I'm still figuring things out. And just commit, for heaven's sake, literally. Or maybe some of you are just in a place where you need to realize that a decision is necessary. You know, like, you're not going to go forward unless you actually decide on something. It is very um, unfashionable to decide and commit in today's postmodern culture. And then maybe for some of you, there are just specific revelations and commitment that have to do with issues in your life. You know, hey, dads, uh, those who are here, those who decided to take a Sunday off, those who are listening on the podcast, maybe this is a day where you need to just kind of decide to commit to your family, or to your marriage, 
or to your heavenly purpose instead of your daily job that pays the bills. But that's just dads. I mean, maybe there's some trouble spot in your life where chaos is kicking your butt. Some way in which the beast has got you by the throat. In which you end up worshiping evil simply because you weren't willing to die a little bit in life. All of us experience moments of death when it comes time to schedule our lives. Uh, because who here is not too busy? Yeah, everybody's too busy. Um, so maybe you need to experience moments of life slash death in your scheduling. I think there are some here who just need to give up uh, a relationship that they know they shouldn't be pursuing. We never judge individuals. We never judge people we're in relationship with. But we do judge relationships. There are some ways of relating that are just unhealthy. Which means that sometimes we need to cut off relationships to get free. And I think there are probably some here today that need to make some uh, decisions to, uh, to die with respect to behaviors, comforting behaviors that are ungodly. And that might well end up with you worshiping the beast, so to speak. Different ways in which you worship the beast in order to comfort yourself. Do you like that apocalyptic language? Are you worshiping the beast? Do you like that language? It makes me really uncomfortable. I guess that's kind of the point, right? Holy Spirit, we pray for your ministry uh, to close off our time together uh, this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would come and be a good dad to us, that you would speak authoritatively in our lives because we know that you have authority to judge authority to judge in a final way. We choose life, Lord. We choose purpose every day. Get us clear on it, Lord, and suggest to us practical things to do. In Christ's name, everybody says...